Hi, friends. Hello, should I delete that, listeners? We still have some tickets left for our live tour and we would absolutely love to see you there. On Thursday, the 23rd of May, we will be performing in the London Islington Assembly Hall. On Monday, the 27th of May, we will be in Salford. On Tuesday, the 28th of May, we'll be in Glasgow. Sunday, the 2nd of June, Birmingham. Monday, the 3rd of June, Bristol. And Tuesday, the 4th of June in Southampton. You can get your tickets at aegpresents.co.uk or via the link in the show notes or our Instagram bios. We really hope we see you there. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. People ask me, oh, what do you do? And I'm just saying, I'm a massive pain in the arm. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I am, and it's, it's good because I think, need. yeah, you need to keep them on their toes. Hello and welcome back to Should I Delete That? I'm Alex Light. And I'm Em Clarkson. How are you doing? I'm good. I've got something so awkward to tell you. It Go on. last Friday. Hit me. It's the worst. It's the worst thing I've ever done in my life. Oh, oh my God. Oh. Go. Oh, I still I still gag when I think about it. Okay, so we went for a nursery tour. We went to go and look at a nursery for yeah. my baby. Yeah. Loved it. Loved the woman running it. Like just yeah. good vibes. So great. Did the tour. Had to dash. Had to had to go. We had to go. Yeah. So um I was like, okay, bye. The woman lent out her arms and I thought, well that's very friendly for a you know, like we're just at a nursery tour, but alright. So I got in there and I gave her a big hug and I realised a second too late that she was not hugging me. She was reaching to press the little green button to open the door behind me. Oh my god. Now, luckily for me, I married a knight in shining armour who saw the situation and lent in also for a hug to make it look less weird and like we were just huggers. So he gave her a hug too. And then she was like, oh, okay, bye. And then we left. That is like that video that we've put on the Instagram account. That should be that Instagram account when the waiter bends over the goes over the table to grab something. Can the girl? Yeah. It's her birthday, so she thinks he's hugging her, and he's like, "Okay." <laughs> uh, if she'd have made a noise, it would have been okay. That's so gross. <laughs> I know, and the worst thing is, is we love the nursery so much that that we have to send. I don't know if you can. I don't know if you can. No, we have to. We have to. I like. I will suffer every day for the rest of my life because she has to go to that nursery. But oh my god! And there was another parent there. There was a prospective mother. Another one looking, watching this sad, sad situation. I hope she doesn't remember you. Oh, she will. Oh, she will. Hug her. I didn't hug her. Should have hugged her. I should have just. I should have doubled down and hugged her too. And all the kids. Oh god. Anything awkward from your side to make me feel better? My awkward is remarkably similar to yours, actually. It was, we've been in the studio this, was it the 
this week? Yes, this week. We've been in the studio this week. And one of our guests, I won't say who, one of our guests walked in and I was standing by the toilet, which is right by the front door. So I was taken sort of caught off guard by her being there. So I don't know. I just, I feel like I didn't have time to like compose myself. She held out her hand to meet me, greet me. But I thought, no, I, I, I did. It was too late for me to see the hand. And I went in for a hug and she, she literally went, oh, and kind of stepped back a little bit. <laughs> and I was like, oh, so I stepped back from the hug, mid hug, hadn't touched her yet, but arms were fully like hug. I stepped back when, of course, sorry, held out my hand. But at that point she was like, no, sorry, hug, let's hug. So she was halfway through and as our, you know, arms outstretched as I was there with my hand out. And I was like, I am so sorry. Like, I'm just so sorry. And it was horrible. It was and horrible. all of that happened while we were just in there. I didn't know that you were dying next door. I know. I felt bad for her because then she looked so awkward and I felt so awkward. And she was having to come in and do this interview now. And I was like, well, I'm a bitch. What's wrong with us? I know. I love how similar they are. Do you have anything good? I do. Go. No, go, go, go. No, go, no, go, 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 go. <laughs> I've been cooking. Um, what? I know. I've been actually cooking properly. I meant to tell you, I've had a DM from a girl saying that she also cooks her peas the same way as you and she wanted you to feel supported. Thank and you. And then she sent another DM saying that's the most boring DM I've ever sent. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love her for it. Thank you so much. Um, so, so obviously I, I did the HelloFresh thing and I think it's, it's, increased my confidence and just made me realize that I can do a lot more than I think I can as long as I just mm-hmm. Google, Google instructions. Last night I made special mashed potato and fish. thought you were going to say special K so I'm impressed. <laughs> what's, special. Spe- what's a special? I miss a special K. What's a special mashed potato? Mashed potato with um, onions, leeks, peas, sweet corn and edamame beans. It's so good. You look disgusted. Why do you look disgusted? I don't like onion. Okay well okay fine forget that but the rest of it because leeks in the onion family yeah the rest of it sounds good right yeah that's great yeah good for you and i cooked a piece of fish so that's my good what about you my good is that i went to dublin we finally went we took arlo to the motherland well to the fatherland to where her dad's from alex is irish boy alex very confusing so we went back we went we went to his home which we haven't done yet since she was born and um it was so nice we got like her family and friends got to meet her and we we tried doing a night out um didn't go didn't go great mm. um she was like we did three songs at blur and then she was like you can come back now. <laughs> I'm um, done. Tapping out. Yeah. <laughs> um, bitches, where are you? So we came back, but it was so fun. It was a really good practice because obviously by the time you're listening to this, Alex's surprise 30th, my Alex, will I will have pulled it off. Yes. It's so, tomorrow. So excited. So excited, but obviously, oh, I can't come to that. So last week was yes. a bit of a training. We've learned our lesson. We've got new teats on the bottle. She's taken them this week. Excellent. All good vibes. Excellent. Exactly. Excellent indeed. So we're going to go again on um, on Saturday. We're going out. So Dublin was great. Knit like, and yeah, good. Thank God we had that practice. And now we're going out on this Saturday. So it's all good. I'm Excellent. just, I'm, I'm, I'm living. Love it. I love that. Oh my God. You're, Thank you. Thanks so you, much. Your energy is good. I agree. 
Uh, anything bad? Let's ruin it. <laughs> let's let's bring this energy right down. Um, my bad. Oh, my bad is that I'm struggling to find motivation to shoot content. You know, which is difficult when your a lot of your job is to shoot content. In fact, probably yeah. Arguably, most, most of, of your it. job <laughs> is to shoot yeah. content. I'm really finding it hard. I don't know. I'm struggling to find the motivation. And I don't want to. I don't want to blame the heat because it's not that hard. That will irritate you. But <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah. Do, do you do you not go through those periods when you just like I just I went through a casual nine month period where I just did yeah, nothing. Fair, yeah, like it's, it's, yeah, I completely get it. Yeah, it's really hard to be like you on. know on it on yeah. all the time. But that's showbiz, baby. Finger click, like, jazz hands. My it is showbiz. My sister works with me, and she's just like. It's so simple to her. She's like, come on, let's just shoot this today. And I'm like, I, I've got a mental block. I've got a mental block and I can't. Anyway, what's your bad? Maybe it's because I'm using too much energy with cooking. I don't know. I'll, I'll work it out. That's probably, <laughs> probably. It. You go, back to, probably. go back to being cooked for. Yeah. Um, my bad, bad is that I faked tan last night. It doesn't look too bad, does it? It doesn't look too good. And I'm on my way to a shoot with Sweaty Betty. I've got probably the biggest shoot of my career on Monday. I've got Alex's birthday tomorrow. And I was like, I need to be golden and glowing. So I faked tanned, which last week went pretty well. I did it before Dublin. Again, practice run. Use a Sancho Pay classic tan, which yep. never does me wrong. Yep. Absolutely love it. Agreed. But I'm assassinating my bed sheets. I think it's because I'm sweating. So I do it yeah. before bed and then I sweat. Obviously, I can't do my titties because otherwise my baby will look like Homer Simpson. <laughs> so I just have to like kind of grade it down. And then I feed her lying down. So she's lying next to me. And then it's like she's trying to touch my body. And I'm like, that's so cute. Get off me because <laughs> you, you are going to go a funny, funny colour. Um, so it's like quite it's quite a sweaty, stressful process. It is. And the pillow's gone a bit orange yeah. because I think my arms got sweaty. And I'm annoyed about that because I've got white company bed sheets and they're expensive. Um, so I'm just praying for Vanish Roxy Action to do its work. Do it in the morning. Um, do it in the morning and then just... It's hard with a baby because I've got to carry her all day. Yeah. It's the longest time that she's down for, so I touch her the least. So if I'm wearing pyjamas, I can just sort of like right. slip her boob out and then we don't touch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, her. I get you. Oh, that's yeah, that's rough. I've got to sacrifice yeah. something. It's the baby. It's the baby or the sheets. So naturally, I'm going to sacrifice the baby. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I was. I didn't want to say it, but <laughs> white company sheets it. are really nice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okie dokie. We have an amazing guest today. Yeah, we have a really important interview today with Quajo Twenaboa, who is a social issues campaigner from South London. We spoke to him about the social housing crisis in Britain at the moment, something that he has first-hand experience of and something that he has subsequently done a lot of campaigning for. It was really shocking and at times quite a hard listen, but I think it is so important because there is, thanks to the media, this level of ignorance and apathy when it comes to what is a huge, huge crisis. So we're really pleased to be able to bring this episode, to have had this conversation and we hope you take something from it. So thank you so much for listening. Hi, Quajo. Hello, hello. Thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Fresh off of Good Morning Britain. Yes. Straight yeah, to should have deleted that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Bit of a yeah. downgrade, but <laughs> thanks for being no, here, nonetheless. Not all, not all. It's like going down a slide. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it's really, it's really, really good to be here. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Um, you are a social issues 
campaigner. Yes. Uh, demanding urgent reform in the public se- in public sector housing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You've done a lot of brilliant work and I'm sure we're going to get into all of that. But um, it would be great to start at the very beginning, if that's all right with you. Yes. Yeah. And it would be great to know what led you to this work. Yeah, so... Um... I've grown up in social housing and um, with my sisters, my dad, my mum also lives in social housing and we were living in absolute poor conditions. I mean, mm. I think it was around, I remember Grenfell, so it was before Grenfell, we moved into our temporary accommodation and it was falling to absolute bits. I mean, it was a converted car garage. It still had the garage door on and it was filled with damp and mould. Uh, we, ba- we barely had any furniture, um, literally two beds and a wooden chair. And it was filled with mould, mould growing into the bed, mould growing into what you could call a wardrobe. If you saw it, you'd probably argue otherwise. And we had a shower, which was the size literally of a cupboard. Um, It was was a broom cupboard converted into a shower, basically. And there was a toilet shoved in there just and a sink too. Um, And it was falling into absolute bits. I remember during winter, the pipes became so cold that um, it froze and burst and flooded the bedroom and destroyed our schoolwork and stuff was on the floor our books and whatnot and it destroyed them destroyed clothes and whatnot and it was just absolutely poor and then in 2018 we moved we were given the option basically is we either move up to Luton or we take that garage was the option given to my dad at the time and at the time I was studying for my A-levels my sister was studying for her GCSE so she was in we were both in our final years and the only option our school was advising that we stay and so that's what we did and um, moved in there, finished my A-levels in there, sisters doing our GCSEs in there, trying to study and whatnot. And then from there, we moved into our permanent accommodation, which I'm still in now, which is in Mitcham. And it's on the Eastfields estate. And as soon as we moved in there, I mean, it was full of disrepair and falling to bits, cockroaches, mice, damp mould, lights filled with water, a kitchen that was nearly 100 years old. I mean, the, the unit's so wet that you could probably put your hand through it. Um, a bathroom which wasn't fit for use, poor security to the house. I mean, there was one occasion actually, which I'll go, go on to where my dad was at home and someone tried to break in using a crowbar at the front door. Had they walked around the back, they would have been able to walk straight into the house because the back doors were broken, the back fences were broken. There was only a brick stopping it from being opened. Um, and then my dad became ill. He was diagnosed with stage one esophageal cancer. That then progressed over the space of a year to stage four. At the time, we didn't realise how aggressive that cancer was and he became very unwell. Um, He walked around, was independent and whatnot and went from that to being bedbound, fed through his stomach because the tumour in his throat wasn't able to eat or even swallow his own saliva. He was vomiting every 10 minutes and being fed through his stomach three times a day by district nurses in those conditions. And we had complained, he had complained and nothing was ever done. And he passed away in January 2020 and he was his funeral was in February 2020 and things went from bad to worse because on the day of his funeral a leak then happened and it caused the partial collapse of our living room ceiling directly above where his hospital bed was that was in February 2020 no one came out to deal with it even after us complaining about all the other issues until October of that year when they did they ripped the whole ceiling down didn't tell us that it contained um it had asbestos containing material in it and left dust everywhere um, 
And we thought, okay, it might be a week, two weeks, maybe three weeks before a ceiling's put back up. Um, they said, no, you won't have a ceiling for Christmas. We've got no one available until the January the following year. So that's a year, a year. So it was over winter. It was basically over winter. Basically a year, yeah, of since the yeah, leak happened, yeah. the ceiling then being put back up. Um, and so that was fine. We allowed that to happen. And I had been complaining about all the other issues and their promise time after time that we're going to come out and sort these issues. They never did. Um, and there was one point I worked across the road at the school, the secondary school that I used to go to, and I phoned them on my break. And I remember it was my break. And I spent more time at that school on the phone trying to get issues sorted in the house and I did actually do my work and I'm allowed to say that now. But um, the person on the phone was so dismissive, so rude, basically turned around and said, we've got no one available, even after promising that they would come out at eight. I rang at 10.30 to find out why no one was there. Said there was no one available and basically hung the phone up on me. So I said at that point, it's not going to be me that calls you next. It's going to be a journalist. And that was that was the goal. I didn't know any journalists at the time. I didn't know where they were, where they lived, what sort of castles they were living in. It certainly wasn't in Mitcham, so I thought. And I decided to go into my house, take pictures, take videos, upload it to social media. It went absolutely viral. Um, and local journalists picked it up, did a story. And um, then my housing provider turned around and in their statement, which I'll never forget, even after knowing my dad had just passed away, um, they said something along the lines of, we're sorry that Quajo feels as though him and his family haven't received the service that they deserve. Even after all of that and all of the pictures, all the images and whatnot. And to me, that, sh that showed me they had no shame whatsoever. And I was determined mm -hmm. to shame them. So I said, fair enough. If that's the game, literally I remember thinking, if that's the game they want to play. And then after school that day, I went around with two people that lived on my estate and put a letter through every single door on the estate and knocked on doors speaking to people. Um, asking them to come forward, basically, if they're living in similar conditions too. Mm. By the time I had done a full loop of the estate, posting letters through, and there's about 500 homes in the estate, my phone was already blowing up and it didn't stop for weeks. Um, people sending me videos, people trying to call me, sending pictures, emails, telling me how long they had complained for. There was one lady um, that knew my dad very well and I didn't know the conditions she was living in and she works two jobs in two different schools in the morning. She'll work in a primary school in the evening. She'll clean secondary school. I think three jobs at the time she was working. And um, she had been suffering with issues for 27 years. And at the time I was about 22. So that was longer than I had been alive. Mm. And it got so bad. She's in her 60s mm. that um, she, she herself had to go to B&Q, purchase cement. And she doesn't live on a ground floor. Had to take it upstairs into her kitchen, mix it herself and try and fill holes to stop mice from coming in because our provider wouldn't deal with it themselves. They happen to be the largest provider in, I believe, Europe, um, social housing provider in Europe. Um, so it goes to show just how big the problems were. And they were disgraced on ITV News. I worked with them for about two weeks on a like investigation that we were doing. And they went around people's homes and filmed and it went out as a top story, um, as essentially a slum estate, because that's exactly what it was. And um, my provider was absolutely shamed into carrying out works, but I didn't stop there. They own social housing, the local borough, all the social housing. So I went around to other estates and saw they were in the exact same conditions, only five minutes from my house and went back to the media. They did the same and they were forced to spend millions on um, trying to upgrade the roofs and whatnot, just not just on my estate, but in the local area. There's still issues there even today, even on my estate. And this is what, two years on since mm. I started campaigning. Um, but now people get in contact with me from up and down the country under different social housing providers, not even just social housing providers, mm. who are under private landlords too, that are absolutely suffering in 
disgraceful, unsafe, unsanitary, uninhabitable conditions, yet they're forced to live in there and they have to pay rent for it every single month. And this in the sixth richest country Absolutely. in the world. Yeah. Exactly. I'm so sorry for you losing your dad. Thank you. And I'm so sorry for you that, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like you didn't really get the chance to grieve him properly. Uh, You hit hit the nail right on the head. And yeah, yeah, that's why I thought to myself, you've taken that from me and my Mm. sisters. And at the time I was Mm. very depressed. I was on medication. Um, I've, I've mentioned it before, but at the time I was very suicidal and um, they just didn't care about that whatsoever. And I thought they 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 took that moment from us, mm. um, which is a moment that no one would want taken from them, even the chief executive that works for that organisation. So I made a commitment that I was going yeah. to make or give them an ounce of what mm. it is that they put us through mm. by shaming and disgracing yeah. them repeatedly and publicly too. Um, but you're completely right. We didn't have that opportunity to yeah. grieve. No. And... I imagine it's an incredible incentive in that it obviously propelled you to do such good work, but it's mm. such a horrible situation. Off the back yeah, off. yeah that, mm. that you've had to. And it, like you said, it's two years on. How are you feeling now? Um, well, it's three years on. So three, it's three years. years on from my dad passed away. So just over two years since I started campaigning. But I mean, there's days, even like Father's Day was what, two, three days ago. Yeah. And that was difficult because you see everyone uploading pictures of their dads and whatnot and yeah. um, celebrating Father's Day and you're all... It, it just brings back memories, even birthdays, Christmases and stuff. And... Or you come across pictures like I did on mm. Father's Day that I hadn't seen in a very long time and I forgot it completely existed. And yeah, it brings it all back. I mean, people hear three years and think it's a very long time. It absolutely isn't because no. you remember it like it was yesterday and he became so ill, like so ill. It mm. was, I think for everyone around him, difficult to even watch him that yeah. ill. Yeah. Um, and what made it worse was the fact that he was living in those conditions. And yeah. I do feel guilt for that because had I been in the position I'm in now, I may have been able to take him out of that, but I wasn't. Yeah. And um, I think that's almost the satisfaction I get from the work that I'm doing now because I'm able to go around and sort of repay that by helping yeah. Yeah. others. But again, nothing will sort of feel that that hole um that is there I think for anyone that loses a parent yeah. and I'm sure it's there permanently your life yeah. just expands and grows around that yeah. situation I do hope though that because he died in under these difficult circumstances mm. that I don't know and again I don't want to put words in your mouth but like that taint his mm. passing away I hope that that can be transformed into and you know you just re- remember yeah the good t- the good things about him and and remember the good yeah I guess mm. but like you say it's only been three years yeah and I mean this campaign has basically been going non-stop so I'm constantly talking about yeah. the same subject so yeah. but then there are times like I, I do even now still have dreams where he's well and it's yeah. like completely normal and there's been situations where we're even arguing in these dreams like <laughs> yeah we were years ago um so it's like those, and then you wake up and you realise, and he's no longer here, but there's there's moments like that which are nice. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really important to highlight as well your age. Mm. You've done this. Mm. You've done so much at yeah. such a young age. Are you 24 now? 24 now, yeah. yeah. So I think I started, my dad passed away when I had, just after I turned 21. 
Which yeah. is a horrible time. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's no good time to lose mm. a parent, but you were so, so mm. young to, to lose your dad and yeah. then so young to do what you've done. Mm. Like, mm. it's just, it's so, and it's so frustrating that you're doing work that unfortunately I, I imagine feels like just unfinishable at the moment mm. but like, <laughs> yeah. in terms of the challenge in front of you yeah. but it is so remarkable the headway that you've made and the fact that you have you were able to sh- like shame mm. and and I imagine the incentive that you had was so raw and you were so angry mm. and it actually probably took that anger Mm. to make the change that you have which is so depressing that like, that's yeah. what it took yeah. but what do you think I mean because I'd love to talk to you as well, not love to because it's a horrible conversation mm. but I think it's really important to to mention Grenfell here yeah. because it, it mm. feels like the government are being shamed mm. Mm. In, in this, in you know, like, because you did a documentary as well, didn't you? I did, yeah, for Channel, Channel 4 last year, yeah. Mm. So it's like, yeah. you know, there, there's these huge exposures, there's this proof in front of everybody that it's just not acceptable. And then what happened at Grenfell is just abhorrent and you just can't believe that it's been seven Well, years? it's... Now I have to remember. So it was 2017. It was the sixth year anniversary this year. Six years, yeah. Yeah. And you can't believe that it's like still going on, still no arrests, still like. And so I wonder what you think going forward is, will it continue requiring public shaming like this? Does it need Mm. constant exposure and constant, or do you think that there is meaningful change that is capable of happening any other way? Um, I think this constant shaming is working, and I think the work, too, of journalists Mm. supporting this issue and realising it's a problem that's not going away and keeping it in the spotlight, because ultimately that's the pressure that's put on politicians. I mean, they hate when journalists are sniffing around, and not just them, Mm -hmm. but any organisation, because bad PR is the most expensive thing not just for an MP as we've seen in the last few days but also um, organisations too nothing is more expensive and detrimental for them and I think it's going to take that constantly I mean in regards to Grenfell one of the biggest shames of this country I think um, was the fact that that happened and 72 innocent men women and children lost their lives prematurely for no reason of of their own and they Mm. went to bed one night and unfortunately expecting to wake up the next day and they didn't you would have thought that would be would have been the absolute turning point needed the fact that even one person died um, through no fault of their own you would have thought that would be enough needed in order for legislation to be brought forward to make sure this never happens again systemic change drastic change um, and I often say, had Grenfell been an office block in Canary Wharf and people, 72 uh, individuals died in that, would, have, would it have taken so long for an inquiry to happen? Mm. Would it have taken so long for an investigation to happen? Would it have taken so long for individuals to receive justice? And I come to the conclusion that no is the answer. It just so yeah. happens the people that are living in social housing um, in Grenfell um, happen to be some of the most vulnerable mm. and poorest of our society and therefore they're cared less about, which I think is absolutely wrong. And it's an absolute disgrace, I think, the fact that, what, six years on, um, myself and other campaigners are out here shaming providers for the exact same thing those residents were complaining about um, just before they had died. That's really important to note, isn't it? That Grenfell, and I don't think... I don't know if a lot of people know this, but before Grenfell, it, it wasn't, I mean, it was just some horrible event that 
you looking at it from the outside, you just think, oh God, no one could have foreseen this. Mm. But people did foresee this. Mm. It was, there were so, I don't know how many complaints there were. They were warned, not even just by residents in Grenfell. Mm. Um, they were warned by professionals. Even the government were warned by professionals that, and this isn't the first time that a, a fire has happened in a social housing block. And then they had been warned that because of the materials and whatnot um, being used, there is a huge risk that there could be a, a detrimental, mm. a massive loss of life if a fire were to happen in a tower block. And I'm reading a book at the moment and one of the quotes um, which made the hair stand up on my arm was someone warning, I believe it was a government official, um, someone in charge basically, that they're worried that people are going to die in a in a social housing block due to a fire because of the materials and whatnot being used and the fact that residents have been neglected. And that individual's mm. reported to have turned around and said, well, show me the bodies. And um, that was before Grenfell. Was that a government minister or someone from the Social, Social Housing Association? I believe it was, they were government mm. related. I believe they were government related. Um, don't mm. quote me on that though, but there was someone senior and someone in charge that could have made systemic change or raised this issue. And they reported to have turned around and said, well, show me the bodies of those that have died because from what they've seen, no one has. Years later, mm. we see that Grenfell happened and in fact, 72 innocent individuals have at died least as a result. 72. At least 72, yes. I think that's an important point to make. I know we reference 72. Those are the one, those yeah. are the individuals that we know of. Mm. But no doubt, I mean, I've been around estates up and down the country. There could have been people in there that were undocumented, for example. There mm. could have been people there that were visiting friends and family. There could have been people there that came over on, I don't know, holiday, you name it, that yeah, had just yeah. been there, but weren't actually noted down that, that, that died. I mean, mm. someone actually said to me, when they hear the number 72, they think of 72 households and not actually the, the, the number, it doesn't represent the number of inhabitants in those households yeah. that they know have actually mm. died. And I completely get, I do get that argument. But from what officials say, 72 individuals, and it should never have taken that. It really, it's, mm. a, it's partly why I remember watching it in that garage that I was talking about earlier. I remember being stood there and watching it one morning um, just before I went to sixth form. And I remember waking up and just seeing a building burning and it was like a drone image of it or a helicopter image just going around the building. And at first I didn't really process what I was looking at. Mm. I just thought oh, it's a building on fire. I thought, oh, everyone must be out. Then I saw the headline um, that people are suspected to have died in it. And then I saw uh, video footage on people's phones of individuals up at the window during mm. the night screaming for help while mm. the fire was taken over the building on top floors, whatnot. And then you heard uh, phone calls being made to the police and the fire service and yeah. people's sheer desperation. Facebook live streams and whatnot of people in their homes trying to speak to people. Um, it, I will never forget where I was stood and mm. the, the, the image of what it was that I was seeing at that time. And I don't think absolutely anyone should because it was so horrific. Um, and that is why I believe they need justice and this really has to be seen through six years on and the fact that hasn't happened is really not good enough. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yeah. And it's not just... The tower blocks, it's not just mm. the cladding. Like the lack of standardization of like regulation means that it's not just the cladding that's an issue, but like you're seeing the problems within your own house, within the estate that you're in. Like the problems occur across the board when it comes to these because I guess they're so unregulated. Yeah. Is there anybody holding them to mm. account in terms of regulation? Not really. I mean, we have the regulator for social housing at the moment and we've got the housing ombudsman, mm-hmm. but really nothing can change until um, legislation's brought in, which they're hoping to do either later this year mm-hmm. or next year. So although regulation's being brought out, the answer to that really is no. Over the last few years, there hasn't been anyone holding these landlords, these people receiving money off of tenants to account. And that's simply why they got away with it for so long. It's not until people mm. start shaming them that they see that there's a problem. This regulation's coming out, not just off the back of that, but massively off the back of Grenfell too, and the fact that that happened, but six years on mm. and six more years of people suffering, saying they've been treated exactly the same. I think it's absolute an absolute shame. And I would go as far to say, as in my own personal belief, if this had been a private landlord or if this had been a case where it was ordinary civilians, people would go to jail mm. for it. There would be criminal pros- prosecutions. I don't see why there should be any difference with social housing corporations um, or landlords or housing professionals that basically dic- dictate the lives of their tenants living in their homes and choose whether to listen or ignore them. Mm, yeah. And when it gets to an extreme case like the two-year-old boy that died in Rochdale because he was living in a home filled with damp and mould or Grenfell for example where people have died they've paid the ultimate price mm. for sheer negligence often mm. I'd by any definition corporate negligence I absolutely believe people should be going to jail yeah. for it I think that's as far as I want legislate or I want to see legislation go that far but unfortunately we're not seeing that as of yet if we if we try and get to the root of why this issue is so huge why are the people you know, the people who have the responsibility of not just maintaining acceptable living conditions in social housings, but safe living conditions. Why why the neglect on their part? Like why why the the reluctance to, you know, maintain these standards? Is it is it just because they can? Is it just because nobody's holding them them to account? Or I mean, I think you touched on before like a lack of a lack of care because 
like you say, these you know, the, the people are some of the poorest people. Mm. Why? Why is it? I think it's a mixture. It starts off with um, them simply not caring because if they cared, they would be able to make sure these issues weren't happening. Mm. They have the money to in a lot of cases, mm. um, and the government. It comes to, ultimately if the people at the top controlling things haven't cared, and they haven't because they've been selling off council homes instead of building them. Um, then everyone that follows below in in regards to the hierarchy is not going to care either. So I think fundamentally it's down to not caring. Also, I think they're completely out of touch. Um, You look at a lot of these housing professionals and senior roles, they've never lived in social housing. They don't live in social housing. You ask them when last were they on a social housing estate and some of them will tell you um, they can't remember. Um, That's how out of touch they are. When last they speak to a social housing tenant, you ask them that and there's a complete disconnect how are you providing a service but you don't know how it's been received by the 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 people actually receiving it um basically so i think it's a mixture between those two and also because they can get away with it too they Mm. know they can get away with it that's why they have they've lost their purpose deny like basic humanity like it's it's kind of unbelievable yeah i mean i i maybe part of the the thinking is, you know, ignorance is bliss. Like if I look mm. into it, then I might start to care. So I'm just not going to look into it. But they are just denying basic human rights. And that's something that falls under their their responsibility. Yeah. I mean, imagine if this was NHS always say, put in that situation, if yeah. there's patients being neglected in this way, there'll be an there will be absolute outrage and you're completely right talking about human rights because it is a basic human right mm. and um, I don't think it's been spoken about enough um, in regards to I have no doubt this is a violation especially due to the scale of it and how widespread the issue is of poor housing dangerous housing even after Grenfell I have no doubt, doubt in my mind that it's a human rights violation mm. yet it's not being viewed at that level mm. Do you think it's because I think you said you were on this morning with um, right-leaning party whether it be BNP or um, or UKIP or whatever Mm. I feel like the rhetoric and if we use it we touched on it earlier but if you use it to talk about channel crossings and Mm. migration like the way that we speak now about people coming to this country is so abhorrent like you can't believe how some of the stuff you hear you can't like you can't believe that it's just being said like it's not being checked it's not being like we've got very used to this quite extraordinary language being used and really inflammatory and like the Rwanda flight the way that the you know the government is saying things that just we are, I, I feel like our tolerance for what they're saying has got quite high in terms of like the ridiculousness that just keeps on coming so people have stopped reacting maybe in the way that they did do you think that there's a rhetoric around social housing that contributes to this in terms of like the general publics? Like, I wonder how your um, like documentary that you've done has been received by people. Is it shock? Is it sympathy? Or is it, do you get, do you receive any? It's always crisp, a mixture. Like, I know what you mean. It's always a mixture b- between it. I mean, the majority is shock because people just can't believe that individuals yeah. are being allowed to live in these conditions. And there have been negative stereotypes, false stereotypes. That's the word yeah. I think I'm looking yeah. for. It's, just, it's, the, it's a very easy thing for the government to do, right? Just stereotype yeah. it and just be like, well, yeah. well. And that's it. And it's been so inflammatory. I mean, completely wrong, the per- uh, perception of social housing tenants here in the UK and what's not helped and I'm allowed to say it is shows like Benefit Street and other shows like that that paint mm, a picture yeah. of social housing tenants which couldn't be further from the truth mm, yeah. but has seen has been seen as almost um, entertainment for different classes yeah. I mean they want to look at yeah. 
situations like that where they're not living in it and be able to laugh and joke. So it's benefit very stream. daily maily, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think it's that's not helped massively. And there's this perception of social housing tenants, which is just like that. And I've, along with others, have been working to prove that that absolutely isn't the case. There's loads of people living in social housing from different profes- professions, mm. whether it's public sector, teachers, nurses, doctors, I met solicitors. Uh, it's a broad range, surgeons, yeah. you name it, an absolute broad range of people living there. But again, it's this stereotype which has existed for absolute decades. Once upon a time, people were proud to live in social housing. Mm. It was set up to be something to be proud of getting into. Um, And in regards to touching upon um, rhetoric and asylum seekers, um, I think it's an absolute disgrace uh, how this country, I won't say this country, I'll say the government, Mm. have treated asylum seekers and migrants, uh, especially in the last few years, and in particular, I mean the Home Office yeah. and their rhetoric um, speaking about migrants because I think it's peddling this discriminatory and I think racist um, notion that they are doing nothing but going to come here and scrounge off of the government and the state, which couldn't be further from the truth. And even the way in which they talk about migrants crossing the channel. First and foremost, nobody is getting in an inflatable boat and choosing to travel across the channel with their kids, with their family, if they are not desperate. Yet the Home Office is painting them Mm. as gangs and organised criminals. And fair enough, they may be the ones in charge of organising these boat crossings, Mm. but the individuals in the boats are clearly desperate. Otherwise, they would stay Mm. where they are. No one is willing to risk their life Mm. on that scale. And look what they're coming to. Yeah. And, and th- yeah. this sort of treatment and rhetoric, rhetoric by the government talking about they're the worst of the worst. And what angers me the most, and no one's willing to touch upon this subject, is you will remember a few years ago um, the, the invasion of the Taliban in Afghanistan and how people were fleeing Afghanistan to, to come to the UK and different countries. And there were individuals hanging off the back of planes, yeah. falling to their death, trying to get out of the country. And now they've come here and they have been, and I can tell you because I've worked with some of them, been treated absolutely disgracefully, crammed into rooms mm. in hotels like sardines, being moved up and down the country all over the place, young kids who are studying and looking for schools. And of recent, I believe it was April, I have to double check this, but we were telling, or the government were telling Afghan refugees that had come here to flee the Taliban, that they now must vacate the hotels that they have been put in and find their own accommodation. In contrast to the way in which we have treated Ukrainian refugees that have come because of the war between Ukraine Mm. and Russia. And whilst we're telling Afghan refugees to move out of hotels, the government's pumping hundreds of millions to house Ukrainian refugees and telling us to open our homes. And the only difference I see, and this is why I think the Home Office um, revolves around discrimination, although they won't say that, is the only difference between Ukrainian refugees and Afghan refugees is not their situations, but the shade and colour of their skin and their backgrounds. So I think it's absolutely undeniable. And I think it's been an absolute disgrace in which refugees and migrants of colour have been treated by this Home Office and by the government and the way in which we treat Ukrainian refugees. But I have to make the point that I absolutely believe we've made the right decision in treating Ukrainian refugees in the way that we have. I think all refugees should be treated like that. But we haven't seen that um, from the government and their rhetoric's been absolutely disgraceful. And I was I would go as far to say what makes it even worse is that the people that are in charge of making these decisions and Rishi Sunak and he stopped the boats and painting 
migrants and all migrants as organised criminals is that these individuals had parents that came over here as in some, or grandparents as asylum seekers or migrants themselves, yet they're pushing this agenda. Had roles been reversed, essentially what they are saying, Priti Patel, Rishi Sunak, Suella Braveman, is that if roles were reversed, they would deny their own parents and grandparents entering the UK mm. by their own policies. I think it's an absolute disgrace. And I think it's a disgrace that we're using people as colour in these positions so that the government can't be, as a token gesture, so that the government can't be accused of being racist or discriminatory. Because absolutely it is. And that is the hill I will die on. Yeah. Arguing. I'll, I'll die there with you. Yeah. Like, so I, so, so, so well, I'm brave. I'm like, I can't, I can't, like, I, I, that's what I mean about the statements that you make that you can't believe are really happening. Like yeah. You can't believe you're really hearing them. Yeah. That the, that's the Home Secretary speaking like that. Yeah. It's actually disgusting. And what happened to the Equalities Act and following the Equalities Act and us being anti-discriminatory or anti-racist, yet it's the government, the people in charge, mm. using these inflammatory terms to, to, to demonise people that are fleeing war, persecution. Mm. I've worked with asylum seekers that have fled... Um, gang-related violence, victims of FGM. I mean, I've spoken to people that I've worked with, individuals that have come from Afghanistan fleeing the Taliban and whose lives have been made in absolute misery since the moment they got here. I have to say, first and foremost, in regards to housing too, is that there's this perception, and I think it's completely wrong, and I encourage people that when they're talking about the subject, they mm -hmm. actually educate themselves first about the way in which migrants or asylum seekers or the process they have to follow when they come over here to the UK. When they arrive here, they don't have a red carpet rolled out for them and social housing uh, keys handed over to them and giving them a tap on the back and say, you move in here, this is yours. It doesn't work like that. When they come here, they must seek asylum. In order to do that, in a lot of cases, it takes years. I've spoken to people who have been trying to seek asylum for over a decade. Until they can seek asylum, they have no recourse to public funds. Meaning actually, mm. although they're being housed by the Home Office, and I have to say the conditions of the properties that the Home Office are providing to these migrants are absolutely slum conditions too in a lot of cases, they aren't able to, to, to receive help from the council. Meaning they cannot receive social housing until they've had their asylum application granted. So that notion that they're coming here and stealing our homes and stealing our jobs and stealing our hotels and whatnot, is completely false. They cannot work until they've had their asylum application granted. That takes years. In a lot of cases, mm. they receive, what was the figure? I think it's, they're given, I might be wrong, it might be less than this, but £35 a week that to live on. That sounds about right. I yeah, £35 pounds a week to live on. Oh. That's the reality. So mm. anyone with the notion that they're coming here and stealing homes or they're handed keys as soon as they roll up, um, living in amazing hotels and whatnot is completely false. And I, I absolutely encourage them to mm. go and educate themselves on the process that has to be followed mm. when asylum seekers and migrants come over here to the UK instead of spreading what is it, misinformation. I understand because it's being peddled by the government and they mm. should know better than that. Mm. The reason you were on Good Morning Britain this morning is to is to debate whether uh, British citizens should be, should be pushed up the waiting list mm. over refugees, right? Mm. How did that debate go? I mean, it was interesting. Um, there was a poll that was conducted. I think 18,000 people actually uh, made a decision. And majority, vast majority, I think it was 91% said yes. They absolutely they should, should be. But again, and this is a policy that the government claimed they're going to bring out. It, for me, 
doesn't improve race relations in the country because what they're doing is again demonizing migrants and they're mm. they're basically pitting two groups in society british people british born people and those fleeing persecution and war against each other mm. for something both groups deserve and yeah. should have because yeah. social housing should be a safety net that everyone has access to when they need it yeah and what they're not doing is looking at the bigger picture so there was a lot of people saying yes they should be put up the list two problems with that one even if you are pushed up the list, I can tell you now you're going to struggle just as much as being at the bottom of the waiting list. Why? Mm -hmm. Because we already have 1.4 million people waiting to get into social housing and the government aren't building enough. Instead, since 1980s and the introduction of the right to buy scheme mm -hmm. and in 2016 under Housing Association, we've been selling off council homes. So we simply do not have the homes to house mm. people, even if they are pushed up the waiting list. But again, it's about rhetoric. It's about demonizing migrants, I think. It's about pitting two groups against each other. And again, it's pushing Rishi Sunak's mantra of stopping the boats mm. and making mm. these migrants look bad, like they're stealing something out of the mouths of British people. When in fact, the problem is the government aren't doing their job with building more social homes. It doesn't matter where you are on that priorities list mm. but what it does is creates for a further divide in, in in between race relations and i think that is absolutely dangerous but again they know what they do and i can tell you that it's not worth the paper it's written on but let's see if they bring it out yeah well i think we said this before as well i mean it it, it set it before we started recording but it start it in doing that they are leaning towards or hoping i suppose that the british people in social housing will vote for them because they'll be like oh well, look at the you know and it's like it's I believe it to be a really, really dangerous mm. thing to even be entertaining as a conversation because, as we said before, yeah. if you start putting this in other areas like the NHS or whatever, you end up in a really frightening situation where it's very nationalist, which is historically a terrible thing for a country yeah. to be. But you said before about the 1.4 million people who are waiting. Mm -hmm. Can I ask what the reality of that looks yeah. like for these people? Like what, where, where do you wait? Like what is the, in your, in the work that you've done, what have you seen? Um, so people, when they, when they declare themselves homeless or show up to the council, first and foremost, in a lot of cases, they're treated absolutely horrifically. Secondly, they're either advised to move into private accommodation or they're put in temporary accommodation like I was living in, um, which is, again, poor conditions. And I can tell you now, there's absolutely nothing temporary about temporary accommodation. There's people being in there for 10, 12, 15 years waiting to get a social housing property in, the, in, in, in this country. And that is the absolute reality. I think we're moving more towards councils actually advising people to rent privately. And so they can absolve all responsibility of that individual mm. rather than putting them into temporary accommodation or social housing. But again, with local authorities too, they are cash-strapped because they've been underfunded for many, many decades when it comes to social housing in this country. And at one point it was even demonised and looked at as a bad thing. That's the, that's the reality. People are suffering in temporary accommodation in similar conditions to what I described earlier on. It's, it's horrific. And what that means is, although we give it the term temporary accommodation, they are homeless. They are homeless. And I'll give you a statistic, actually. In London alone, there's nearly enough homeless children to entirely fill Wembley Stadium. Holy shit. And that's just in London alone. There's 81,000 homeless children in London alone. And the capacity of Wembley Stadium, I believe, is 91,000. So that goes to show just how bad the problem is. And that includes kids in temporary accommodation, like I described, because that isn't a home for them. It's temporary. Mm. It's not a home. They are homeless. But we use this glitter term of temporary accommodation to make it seem mm. better than what the reality is. 
And I think it's an absolute disgrace. If we're not looking after kids, what does that say about us as a country? The little boy that died mm. because of the mould and 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 the 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 state that that house had been allowed to get into. That feels again like another. It felt at the time very like this can drive change. Do you feel like that's what's happened on the back of that? Well, off of the back of that, um, there's conversations around damper mould have happened a lot, and I, I I have to stress the point that. There are a lot of other forms, like I described, cockroaches, mites, damp mould mm. of disrepair that people are living in. Mm. But the conversation around damp and mould took a serious turn and people started realising actually people, and I had said it for a long time, people can become ill and mm. you can die from damp and mould. Mm. And what we saw here was a young child proven because they found spores of mould in his lung and, lungs and in his blood after he had died. And um, there has been this push to get housing providers to wake up and listen. Although, with that being said, yes, they may be talking about damper mould even more so now. The solutions are still the same and they're absolutely pathetic. They don't work. I mean, it's wash, going into someone's home, wash the mould off so they can't see it and then paint white paint over it and go off. And then three weeks later, that mould is back. Um, or they do that when actually it's a structural issue and it's a leak causing the damp and mould from above. But instead of dealing with the actual problem, it's a quick fix. And as long as they can't see it, it's gone. It's not there. And with damp and mould, I've watched archive footage from 40 years ago of tenants being blamed in the exact same way they're being blamed now for damp and mould. Open your windows, stop drying your clothes indoors, stop leaving the shower running, stop have, filling your bath up so much. It goes to show the attitude towards social housing tenants when they are being blamed for an issue which is in fact in a lot of cases structural or down to the quality of the build and the fact that it's not up to scratch to meet the the requirements needed for people to live in them. Can I ask you, can we move to a more personal yes. note? Yeah. Because um, I'm sitting here thinking like, whilst this work that you do is incredible, it's heavy. And I imagine yeah. really emotionally draining and the things that you see and you witness and the people that you speak to, like, you know, I can just imagine that this weighs very heavily yeah. on you and I just wonder like how it impacts your mental health and yeah. how you how you deal with that because I mean it's amazing what you're doing but it can't be easy no there's sometimes um I mean nothing was worse than how I was feeling after my dad passed away that's for sure and I didn't think yeah. that I could get lower than that so there are difficult days N nothing like that um but there are times where it's hard and it I sometimes question, will I be able to do enough to cause enough of a change to sort of get the right people to fix this or am I out of my depth for, sort of thing? I mean, there's times where I'm flooded with messages and calls and whatnot and there's sometimes I'm just like, give me a break, like let me breathe for a second. Sometimes getting calls at 12 at night um, or messages last yeah. minute asking me to do X, Y and Z early in the morning. Yeah. And... Um, it's it, it does feel constant, but I know it's f for the right reasons. And there's times actually that I think, like I look at people my age and I think they're out yeah. and about enjoying themselves and going to Ibiza and all of these party islands and whatnot, doing what a 24-year-old should do. But I've been doing this, what, since 21, 22? And it's like, I'm not, I know I'm not missing my good days or my good years, let's say, because mm. um, I'm doing work that I am proud to be able to do. Um, but there's times I think, oh, like, am I, am I missing out? Will I look back and think, oh, what was I doing in my 20s? Sort of yeah, thing? I hope you make space for that yeah. as well, because I think you can you can do both and you should do both. And yeah. I think to avoid burnout as well, it's good mm. to be able to 
just counter that all this stuff that you're doing and the you know the the injustice you're fighting and the people that you're going up against who are just yeah. simply not willing to listen to you just to counter all of that with like I'm just 24 year old Quajo mm. just living my life you yeah. know just a very normal yeah. fun life yeah. but you did also just say I wonder if I'll look back at my 20s like I, you will look back at this with such pride such yeah. pride yeah, I mean, yeah like, no yeah. definitely definitely I mean this is like what you're doing is so so huge and you say you don't know if it'll make a difference it's already making a difference yeah. like I think the government have relied for a really long time on just the huge subsects of society not having a voice and being quiet because it's just been easy for them to speak for them and paint whatever picture and you just haven't allowed that and mm. you haven't let up and I think that's really cool yeah. and you're going to be such a pain in the arse for them mm. and that's exactly yeah. what you've got to be I do enjoy it somewhat being a pain in the arse and I've said it for a very long time people ask me yeah. oh what do you do and I'm just saying I'm a massive pain in the arse <laughs> um, yeah. but I am and it's, it's good because it's I think yeah you need to keep them on their toes and I think you're also breaking down like misconceptions around social housing and yeah. also like dismantling the shame that I imagine social housing tenants feel ar ar around, you know, living in, in social housing. Yeah, and I, I want I want tenants and social housing tenants to feel that they can go head to head with chief executives of organisations yeah. or politicians and tell them, well, actually, no, you're wrong because there's a perception that people living in social housing are stupid and they're the sort of undereducated and they don't know what they're talking about. But there's nothing more important, and I can say this from lived experience. Mm. I haven't got a degree in housing. I haven't got a qualification in housing. What I've ha what I have though is lived experience, especially mm. over the last two years, and I can have conversations on the likes of Good Morning Britain and with mm. politicians, MPs, and whatnot from that but also learning from other tenants too and seeing their situations and having discussions with them and I want to be able to get social housing tenants no matter what your age is what your background is whether or not you think you can or should I fully believe your voice definitely matters and you should feel no way about going head to head with these individuals no. that are supposed to be in charge of these problems because ultimately we can see they're not fixed so and speaking out for just what you deserve like yeah. your basic human rights absolutely I think another misconception is that that you know that there's no rent but you pay mm. rent for social housing every month, it's yeah. just subsidized yeah. right every every single month and i mean in some cases rent even in social housing is quite expensive i remember mm. it was when itv came down there was a lady paying 1300 pounds for her um the the the, the home that she was in so mm. it goes to show like yes it's subsidized but in some cases you're paying mm. a lot of money yes not yeah. in comparison to um to private rentals but it's still a lot of money even it's also, for yeah. social housing still tenant. a deal it's yeah. still an exchange like yeah. I think Contract. there is this yeah, yeah so there's this rhetoric yeah. I think as well that pe it's like well you can't be ungrateful because it's free you're like lucky. you have to yeah you're lucky you're lucky to have it you have to take it but you know we like yeah we we have the weirdest thoughts around this when I don't, I think you're right. Al, I don't think people do know that there is still rent to pay. But it's apart from anything, it's like you're signing. You've you've been approved for it. You've been you've been offered it. You've accepted in the, the same requirements, yeah, yeah, and you've agreed to pay, and you do pay, and it's it's still a contract which they are not honouring. And it's like if they won't do the if they won't do the humanity side of it, they won't see it from the humanity side of it. At least see it from the business side of it. Like you're failing as business people as well as nice yeah. humans. Yeah, and that's like, it. I say the same about politicians. Yes, if and. Someone actually told me like, and I'll never forget this, politicians don't deal in morals. They don't deal with no. moral issues. They don't care about whether people are suffering. It's what politically mm. motivates them. Yeah. And I think there's exceptions, obviously, with politicians that actually do care about these sorts of issues. Yeah. But overall, the vast majority at top level deal with what's going to win them the next election. 
Um, and with it, in regards to housing, not only is it a massive moral disgrace, I think the long-term impact on the economy, productivity, the labour force is going to be massively detrimental because if you've got people who aren't well as a result of the conditions they're living in, aren't able to work and contribute to the economy, you're going to see that happen more and more, whether that be in social housing or as we're seeing in private rented accommodation and those in home that own their own homes too, in some cases, um, and people falling ill mentally as a result of the stress being depressed about where they're living, they're going to suffer and that's going to increase the cost on the NHS too. Mm -hmm. Not only that, £1.4 billion was spent last year by the NHS, who we know are cash-strapped as it is, on looking after individuals that are living in terrible conditions and are going to the NHS as a result of that. So even when you look at it from a productivity and financial aspect, it's costing the government in the long term more than what it will cost them to do more to fix this issue mm, and yeah. address it. But they see they, they they see things very short-sighted and it's about the next five years and what's going to win them the next election. What is their focus there? Instead of looking at, we need to make systemic change now so that 20 years down the line, we are in a better position and we can actually say, do you know what? That was as a result of us and our work. But they don't, they don't do that. And I, I mean, mm. the lack of class diversity in Westminster speaks for itself because yeah. why would they care about issues like this when none of them are actually experiencing it or been mm. through it? Yeah. Shit, man. Anyone listening who mm. wants to help? Yes. yes. What can they do? Um, they can talk about this issue and speak to friends, family, speak to their colleagues even. You don't know. I mean, I always say like, people will probably be shocked if they actually found out who it is that they work with living in poor conditions or are suffering mm. as a result of their their, their their home. So speak about these issues, remove the stigma from it, but also put pressure on your local MPs, put pressure on local councillors, politicians, speak about it in the lead up to the election and let them know that we know this is a problem. People have been suffering for decades. What mm. is it that you're going to do about it? Because ultimately, all of us are paying taxes. And the question is, where are our taxes going? Why is it not going on the things that we're prioritising? So it's about us asking for what it is that we want and mm. demanding that they fulfil it because they are receiving our taxes in order to do so. So that would be my um, message. The election's coming up next year. So talk about it more and more and help apply pressure because I am one individual. One individual, <laughs> and I need many more behind me to to help push the the message. You're a very strong individual. Thank you, yeah. thank you, thank you, thank you. I feel like I need a porn star martini now. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you so much. Thank that was you. amazing. Yeah. Thank you, thank you. Show that delete that is part of the ACAS Creator Network. 